Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Those are verses 25 to 28 of Psalm 102, which is the psalm appointed for today, April the 1st, 2021. 22. That was not an April Fool's joke. It was just a mistake. So you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the prophecy of Jeremiah today in chapter 23, verses 1 to 8. And then in the gospel, we'll be continuing in John 6, verses 52 to 59. And then in the Romans uh, passage today is chapter 8, verses 28 to 39, which are some of the most sort of famous and well-known verses in the entire canon of Scripture. So in the Jeremiah passage, he's continuing, the Lord's continuing to give his complaint, uh, to lay out his legal complaint is what I mean, uh, against uh, the nation of Israel. And here it's going to be specific to the leadership. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. And so those shepherds and the sheep, the shepherds are the leaders of the people and the sheep of the people. It's as simple as that. It's a really easy, straightforward kind of a metaphor. So he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. And in multiple places in Scripture, in Zechariah and Ezekiel, you'll see that um, prophets frequently used this metaphor and and frankly and frequently used uh, this idea of the shepherds being the real problem. And, and again, and they are, leaders have a unique responsibility. They have a responsibility to the Lord, and they have a responsibility to the people. If he has anointed you and placed you in that position, then you have a responsibility to him and to the people he's given to you. And you see that a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was talking about, well, Jesus wasn't speaking, the leaders were speaking, and they said, ask for this crowd, they don't know anything, and they're accursed. Well, that's on you, as I've said before. So anyway, here, he says, this is the, now the Lord is going to speak to the shepherds through Jeremiah. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. So they were, they were not doing what was necessary for the people. It was mostly just about self and we see that same thing in, when, when Jesus complains, or not complains, when he, when he speaks about the leaders who like the best seats at the festivals and, and like to be acknowledged in the public square and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly what's in view here today, that they, they, are, they are making more out of this leadership position that they've been given in, in order to, to build themselves up and glorify themselves rather than the Lord. They've not done the job they were given to do. They just enjoy the perks of the office. So then I'll get after, after he attends to them for their evil deeds, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So he, he says, I'm going to fire you all. I'm going to deal with you. For your evil deeds, and then I'm going to bring in new shepherds, and they're going to care for the flock. 
Jesus speaks the same things. In John 10, he will say that I am the good shepherd. And he talks about what it means to be a good shepherd because we know what that looks like because we've all read Psalm 23. So it, it tells us exactly what a good shepherd does. And so Jesus is the shepherd, and then he has under-shepherds. And those under-shepherds need to be about the work of shepherding. And I, and I think that's one of the biggest problems in the church today is, is that we have, we have people who fill roles that look like shepherds, but they, they've redefined it as leaders. And they're, so they're no longer shepherds over the flock. They, they, don't, they don't pay close attention like a shepherd would. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for, David's, for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. We know that this is Jesus. He is the only one who will be this way. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Those are the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And he is. That is exactly what Jesus is for us. He is our righteousness. And by being our righteousness, then he makes us fit to enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. Then they shall dwell in their own land. And so he's, he is telling them, you're going to be going astray. You're not astray. You're going to be going into exile. But know this, I will bring you back. And that's something that the next generations will remember. Not just that the Lord brought us out of Egypt, but that he brought us back from the north country to where we went into exile for our sins. See, the difference between the two exiles and then exoduses will will be um, the first one was not for their sin. It was while the sin of the Amorites filled the land that they were to be given. And this time, they'll be going away for their own sin. But then God will bring them back because he has covenant with them. But they have to be dealt with. Sin will be dealt with. It's dealt with ultimately on the cross. Now, continuing the work, we've been justified on the cross. He is our righteousness. He is our only plea. And then after that, the work of working out our salvation with fear and trembling comes down to the process of pursuing sanctification, dealing with sin, dealing with sin in our own lives with the assistance of the Holy Spirit. In the uh, gospel today, remember Jesus has, has fed them, and then they followed him, and then he refused to feed them. And then they ask for signs, and they've had a dispute about who Jesus is. And ultimately, he, he says, I'm the bread of life, and the flesh I give, it, my flesh is given for the life of the world. And so their response is they disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And it's an odd thing that they disputed among themselves, because Jesus had just told them in the previous reading we had yesterday to stop doing that. <laughs> they, if you have a question, you come to me. I mean, you're not going to get an answer from one another. Come to me. And it's the same thing that they did in the wilderness was that they grumbled against Moses and against, and they, they knew better than to grumble against God. They knew that was not safe. So they would grumble about Moses and then they would be punished for grumbling against Moses. And it took them a long time to figure that out, that what was going on and what they were doing wrong. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Well, now he has moved into territory here that that is not good. It's it's a very difficult theological ground that he's moved onto here, and it's it's not just challenging. At some level, it sounds like cannibalism. And one of the things where it says to drink his blood, one of the things that is absolutely expressly forbidden to any Israelite is blood as food. No, you can't do that, because the life of the thing is in the blood. That's exactly the way it reads. And so you can't drink the blood, or, or, or you want to drain the blood out of animals before you eat them, because you don't want to take that life into your life as an admixture. You, you don't want to take animal blood, because then you're taking part of the life of the animal into yourself. But here Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order that you'd have life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. I'm telling you, this is disgusting stuff. If you're standing there as, a, as an Israelite, and you're hearing Jesus say this, you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink? No, 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 no. That's forbidden for us. We can't eat human flesh. We can't drink any kind of blood, much less human blood. But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Well, that actually makes some sense. <laughs> um, because as I told you, the reason that they're forbidden to, to drink blood or to use blood to eat in any way, is, is that because you're taking the life of another creature into yourself. And so, and so that means you would be, their, their life would be abiding in you if you drank its blood. And so here when Jesus says this, yes, we understand that principle, but I still don't like it. I still think it doesn't fit with everything else that we know. But, but Jesus is offering us the divine life, the life that is eternal. He, he's offering his flesh for the life of the world in the same way you, you would drink animal blood and take animal life into you. He's now inviting you, encouraging you to take his blood that you might have his kind of life, which is different from our kind of life. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate, which he's talking about the manna, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And, and it, again, that would be um, anathema to even think about what Jesus is talking about, because cannibalism, the eating of human flesh, is, is absolutely verboten. And then the drinking of any kind of blood is as well. But Jesus is saying, no, come to me. And that's the tree of life is what he's saying. I am the tree of life. I am the bread of life. If you want life, come to me. But you have to come on my terms. It's, it's a, a difficult thing. You can understand why the Jews push back against this. In this uh, Romans 8 passage, you know, one of the most famous and well-known uh, verses in the Bible is right here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So so long as we are pursuing God's purpose in our lives, what, what we're assured of is, is that all things work together for good. It doesn't mean all things are good, or that, that we would call all things good that happen, but, but what we're assured of 
is, is that all things work together for good. Now, we have a difficult time, as I said a couple of days ago, in determining what good is, right? So good is, is, is when something is exactly the way God intends it to be. That, that's good. And the reason that I say that and the reason that we know that is because we see in, John, or in Genesis 1, God calls things good. And, and then after that, you don't really see that. Jesus is good, and the rich young ruler recognizes that, but Jesus points away from himself and said, no, only God is good. So we know that good may not be something that we would determine from an earthly perspective as good. It's when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, his comment to them is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, did that mean that every day of Joseph's life had been a picnic since he went down to Egypt? No, he'd been in prison for quite a while. So it we can see, though, that in the larger scheme of things, things happen for good. I mean, this this thing with Will that happened almost just well a little over a year ago, um, that has restored a lot of friendships in my life that I had let go over a long period of time, and then brought other people into my life. It's also brought changes in our lives that needed to be made. It's made brought changes in Will's life that needed to be made. Even these seizures, I, I believe God's using them for something good. And, and I won't go into all that, what I think it is, but, but I believe that with all my heart because I believe that Paul was exactly right. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Which doesn't mean just justification. To be conformed to the image of his son is is sanctification. It's working towards being like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There needs to be a familial likeness. (laughs) So we need to be conformed to the image of the son in order that it might be evident who he is and that we are his. Among those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this, these things have already happened. We don't see them as complete, but from God's perspective, it's all true now. He says, so th- what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so what does it mean that we be given all things? Well, obviously it doesn't mean that we get the, just the things that we want from an earthly perspective. It means so much more than that. The things that um, all things would include every good gift, and only he knows what are good gifts. So... If it's a gift from the Lord, then we need to receive it and believe that it's good. Period. End of sentence. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, it's more likely, actually, that that wealth and prosperity (laughs) will separate us from the love of Christ, but not because he gives up on us, but because we just find these other things more interesting and more attractive. So he asks four questions here. If God's for us, who can be against us? And then his, his answer to that 
is 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 that nobody obviously could be against us. It, but he didn't spare his own son. That's how much God loves us. And so you can count on him for everything else as well. And then who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And then who is it to condemn? Well, nobody can condemn us. The, 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 those two questions, who shall bring charges against God's elect and who is to condemn, those two questions relate to Satan. In, in the Jewish world, that's exactly what they believe his job is at some level, is to bring a charge against God's people. We see that in the book of Job. He, he says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him anywhere in the world. And, and the, Satan's response is, well, of course there's not. You give him everything in the world. Put him through a little difficulty and trial and see where that, where that goes. He'll curse you to your face. And so that's his, that's his job is what they believe, that, that he is, his job is to accuse the saints before God, to point out their faults, to show these things in order, in, from, in God's world, in order that we would learn what sin was based on the accusations that are made against us. And then that's the charge that come against God's elect, and then who is to condemn? Well, you know, again, that's his job. But the other side of it is that, that God's job is to judge. So bring in a charge and condemnation are two different things. And so what we're told is, is that, that God's not going to condemn us because his son, the one who gave us life, sits at his right hand and intercedes for us. So then, all right. So those things being taken care of from an eternal perspective, then he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of God, Christ? And then he talks about the earthly things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger of the sword. As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The greatest assurance you can ever have is that he will never leave you or forsake you, and that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ except you. We have control of that in our hands. He controls everything else and won't allow it to separate us. Only we can allow that separation to occur by any of those things. We, we need to stand and fight, and we need to stand in Christ in all things.